Would you open scripture this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 13 to 43. As you turn there, I want to remind you that we are currently going through this book uh, of Acts. Um, we are on, pay on sermon, I think, sermon 27 through this series, and our desire is that next week, if you are able to come and be with us again, we will continue uh, chapter 13. We'll finish, Lord willing, chapter 13. But it is our conviction that we should be looking at Scripture in larger portions and try to take God's Word for us and work through it expositionally so that God's Word sets the agenda for what we talk about here. That's our desire this morning as we reach chapter 13, verse 13. Hopefully you found your passage. It's on page number 921. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they were into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them to their land. He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers became, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. 
but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Be aware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them ne the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Barnabas and Paul, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me and ask the Lord to bless us through his Spirit? Almighty God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us your truth, a message of salvation. We pray now that you would speak to our hearts and apply this truth to our inner beings, to our minds, to our souls. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, friends, today we look at another sermon which we could consider to be a first sermon. This is the first sermon of Paul that we have recorded. Now, surely Paul preached other messages, other sermons prior to this point. We know that from Scripture. But in the book of Acts, this is the first sermon that Paul gets to preach that is actually recorded for us. And it's at the beginning of his missionary journey. We'll get to hear another sermon by Paul in chapter 17 of Acts when he gets to preach in Athens to people who are worshiping many gods, many, many gods. But today, we get to hear what Paul preached to a synagogue, to a crowd that was mixed of mostly Jews and some Jewish converts or Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And, and the, the way that Acts refers to them here in this passage is those who feared God. They're, they're not Jewish by descent, by birth, but they were worshiping the same Jewish God, the God of Israel. 
So Paul addresses them now in this first sermon. What's amazing about this sermon is that it is given to people who already worship God. People who already know something about this God. Paul will speak to them about the salvation that God has given to them and to us through Jesus. Now we know that irreligious people, they should hear about God's message of salvation. But do religious people need to hear about God's message of salvation? Isn't it enough that people already are religious? Do people who already fear God and worship Him, do they need to hear about God's plan and of God's salvation? Sometimes we think that it's only people who, who don't worship God that need to hear about His salvation. And apparently Paul thought that these Jewish people mixed with God-fearers, they too needed to hear. It was not enough for them to hear a message about God in general. It wasn't enough that they already knew many things about God based on the Old Testament. And they did. And it's not enough they lived moral lives and they sought to live lives in accordance to this, the will of God as revealed in the Old Testament. And, and many of them did. It's not enough. They had to hear a specific message about God's salvation through Jesus and through Him alone. Friends, there are people today who are interested in religion because it offers them a moral compass or a guide of, of how to live in life. Or people are interested in religion because uh, it offers them a, a way to deal with life's challenges, life's pressures. Or there are people who are interested in religion because they just grew up with it. And it just grew on them. And it just became part of their social identity. But friend, if these reasons are the reasons why you are interested in the things of God, I want to tell you this morning, you might be misguided. There's something more fundamental about our worship of God. And then more fundamental truth is the message of His salvation through Jesus. And this is what Paul will aim to unpack in the sermon to our very religious crowd. A message of God's salvation through Jesus. And this message has four emphases as we see here in this text. Paul will unpack first what God has done. What God has done. Paul begins by giving a quick summary of the history of Israel, and to no surprise, because he's speaking to Jewish people who knew their history quite well. But in doing so, in, in giving them a quick summary, a quick history of, of Israel, Paul is drawing home a huge emphasis. And the emphasis is what God has done. That's the emphasis. 
what God has done. Notice that most of the verbs that he is ascribing and he's using in verses 17 through 23, most of these verbs are ascribed to God. And he begins in verse 17, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Now this is an important starting point. Israel's relationship to God started not because Israel sought God. Not because anyone was seeking God. Israel's relationship to God started because God elected the patriarchs. God chose Abraham. And then God chose Isaac and Jacob and the fathers of Israel. And then Paul says in the next that God made the people great during their stay in Egypt. And then he says that without lifted arm, God led them out of it. Then Paul mentions the wilderness experience in verse 18. And notice how beautifully Paul ascribes even the wilderness experience to God. And for about 40 years, God put up with them. There's many things Israel has done in that wilderness to their own shame. And how can you focus on God even in the wilderness experience? The only thing God, God, that Paul can say is, God put up with them. Forty years. Verse 19, After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, if you were ever to ask uh, a Jew about the history of conquering the land, they could tell you about all the battles they were engaged in. And yet, and yet, Paul focuses on the right person who actually conquered the nations. It was God. Yes, the armies of Israel were engaged, of course. Yes, there were battles. Yes, there was strategy. But it was God who conquered, destroyed the seven nations, and gave them their land as an inheritance. In verse 20, God says, After that, He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, by the way, from verse 17 to verse 20, Paul just covered the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. That's how quickly he goes through. Now, it's very possible this is just an outline of Paul's sermon. So Paul may have actually gone a little more into it. This is just an outline of his sermon. But bottom line is, he goes quickly through Israel's history, at least the first part. And then after Samuel, he moves on and says another thing that Israel did. They asked for a king. It was not a happy request. But, Israel, but God granted them the request. He granted them Saul for 40 years. But then look at verse 22. When he had removed him, when God had removed Saul, why did God remove Saul? Because Saul did not follow the way of the Lord. When he had removed Saul, the Lord raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. After David, Israel's history took, takes a negative turn. So Paul will not speak very much about that, but jumps from David all the way to his offspring, to one of his descendants in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, 
Jesus as he promised. And this is a climax to which the outline of Israel's history is pointing that God brought Israel a savior from the descendants of David. What's amazing about this, the way of, of, of this history and the way Paul begins to unfold it is that the message of this salvation begins with God. It's what God has made. It was God's initiative. It was God's promise. It was God's provision to bring a Savior. And even prior to that, it was God who initiated to reveal himself to Abraham and to call him out of his land and to build through him a people and to carry that people through Egypt and out of Egypt to give them the land, to give them the prophets, to give them the kings, and now to bring them a Savior so that through them God could bless the nations of the earth. Now, why is this starting point important for us? Why is Paul focusing on what God has made? Why is this an important starting point? Because, friends, religion in its true essence is not man's search after God. Now, it's true that many religions have come into being because they have sought to worship some sort of God, some sort of higher being, and they came up with all kinds of ways of doing so and all kinds of theories and all kinds of gods. So many, many religions, many peoples in the history of our human existence have come up with all kinds of gods because mankind, in some way, it's true, that mankind is seeking after God or after some sort of higher being. But at the essence of Christianity, there's a significant difference, a significant starting point that is different. And it's this. The Judeo-Christian message is that our starting point is God. God chose. God sought. God worked. God promised. God brought a Savior. Man only responds to what God has done. Do you get that? It's a big difference. Man only responds to God's initiative, to what God has done. And that's why Paul begins with this emphasis here of even recounting the history of Israel by focusing on what God has done. The second thing that, that Paul does here, after pointing out to what God has done, is to point out what man needs, to point out what man needs. Now, we've already seen that the climax of Israel's history, as given by Paul in this passage, points to what God has brought through David, through the offspring of David. God gave Israel a Savior. Now, here's a question. Why did God give Israel a Savior? Why? A Savior. There are many people today who don't think they need a Savior. They think they have bigger needs than a Savior. Money. A job. A career, if you're a student. Uh, if you're an older person and are struggling with health, you need health. You need happiness. Perhaps you need a mate. A spouse. 
Perhaps you need fulfillment. Those are the bigger issues we tend to think we need. And yet, every person's greatest need is a Savior. Now, there are two reasons in Paul's preaching that shows us our need for a Savior. First is the ministry of John the Baptist. And second is the condition of the spiritual leaders of Israel. Two things in, in Paul's sermon that show what man needs the most. The ministry of John the Baptist. Why is John the Baptist, why was he sent? And why is Paul mentioning him in, this, in the story of Israel's journey? Why is John the Baptist's preparation important? Well, the people of Israel needed to be confronted with their sin and with a call to repentance. That's why John was sent to administer a baptism of repentance. The ministry of John the Baptist was to make it clear that Israel was estranged from God. That they, the very people of God, if you will, who were called by God, who were chosen by God, who had God's revelation, they are the ones who need to be confronted with the reality that they are estranged from God. And God sent a, home, a messenger with this one primary message to call all of Israel to repentance. They were estranged. Paul skipped so much of Israel's history from David through all the prophets and yet, when he gets to John the Baptist, he cannot skip him because it's an important preparation point. It's an important step in helping people, the Israelites, the Jews, and those who are fearing the Lord, that it was all of Israel who was needing this preparation, who was needing to be confronted with their need for repentance. By making this reference to John the Baptist, Paul is challenging us to consider that before we hear about the Savior, we must be reminded of our spiritual needs, of our spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. For us to realize that we have, spiritually we have nothing of our own, only our sin, our rebellion. And we need God to give us His salvation, His spirit, His new birth. The second argument that Paul makes for helping us see our spiritual need is to inform his audience of what the Jewish leaders have done. When Jesus came, the one who was sent by God to be their Savior, the leaders of Israel missed it. They didn't recognize him. They did not recognize him. The very leaders who are supposed to know God's prophecies, those who are reading God's law and the prophets every Sabbath, Paul says they did not recognize God's provision for a Savior. And more so, they did not understand the utterances of the prophets that were pointing to a Savior. So what do they do? They condemned Jesus. But Paul is very clear. Their actions were not just simply out of ignorance. Notice the indictment Paul brings on them in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Though they found, him, they found in him no guilt worthy of death, and this is an important part. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. They acted unjustly by killing a man who was truly innocent. 
perhaps and for sure, the most innocent man who ever lived on earth, yet so brutally executed, nailed to a tree. This is what Israel's leaders have done. They did not think they needed a Savior like Jesus. They did not believe that he could save himself, let alone others. So they let him die, hanging on a tree. Friends, what is the point of all this? Why is Paul bringing this out? Because mankind, in our sinfulness, does not understand the need for a Savior, even today. In our sinfulness, mankind does not understand a need for a Savior. Just try to engage people around you by telling them that they need to be saved. I'm not sure if any of you have ever done that as a way of engaging in some evangelistic conversation. You know, if you're, if you're at a Starbucks and just say, hey, I just want to tell you, I don't know if you know, but you need to be saved. Saved from what? And you can just go on, saved from the punishment of God against your sin. And most likely the answer you get back is, brother, you need some help. Just tell people they need a Savior or they need to be saved. They will laugh at you. They think you're crazy. Friends, because this is, this is our human condition. We don't wake up in the morning thinking, I need to be saved. Because one side of our, one, one of the side effects of, of living with a corrupt nature in a broken world is that humanity does not need or does not know that it needs the Savior. It's one of the side effects of being blinded spiritually, that we are actually blinded to our own blindness. That's why the ministry of John the Baptist was critical, and that's why Paul mentions it here. John proclaimed that all Israel was estranged from God because of their sin. And therefore, they needed to repent. They needed to turn to God. They needed a Savior. But friends, in our bondage, we don't recognize our need for salvation, nor understand God's promise for a Savior. Nor do we think that we actually need to do something about it. So people continue to reject the Savior even today. Now, if you are a Christian, and you, you have obviously embraced the Savior, you have come to understand your knowledge your state of needing to be saved, because in your sin you're, bond, you're in bondage to sin, if you've come to understand that and have called out to God to save you, you're called to proclaim a gospel about this Jesus. Can I give you an encouragement based on what Paul is doing here? Is don't be afraid of helping people realize their need to be saved before you tell them about a Savior. Don't be afraid of that. Now, it's true that that may risk the conversation going forward. It's true that they may not like to hear that. Nobody likes to hear that they're lost. Nobody likes to hear a declaration of their spiritual bankruptcy. But friends, don't worry about that risk. It's part of God's revelation to us that we are blinded to our own true condition until God reveals that to us. 
We're blinded to God's promises. We're blinded to God's provision for salvation. So be bold to proclaim that truth. And pray that God may use it to help people realize they and mankind needs to be saved. So far we looked at Paul's emphasis on what God has done and what man needs the most. But let's look at what Christ has done. The story of Jesus being killed by the injustice of human leaders does not end with his death. Here's the amazing part. Despite the confidence of the Jewish leaders that they were able to deal with Jesus and put him aside through his death, despite their confidence that they were able to put Jesus aside by crucifying him, God intervened. The most important word in this passage is the word but in verse 30. Because Paul has led us so far to see that this is what, what all these Jewish leaders were able to do to Jesus. And they, they thought they got rid of him. As so many people today think they could get rid of Jesus by ignoring him, putting him aside, thinking he's not worthy to be followed. These Jewish leaders did more than that. They actually acted on that rejection and actually killed Jesus. Something you and I never have a chance to do in the way that your Jewish leaders have done. And yet, there is a but in verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Despite people's rejection of Jesus as God's Savior, God proved them that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, the Savior of his people. And Paul's point at this point is to emphasize that the resurrection of Jesus was not a new idea. It was God's promise from the Old Testament. Paul, at this point, will give three quotations from the Old Testament, one from Psalm 2, the other from Isaiah 55, and the third from Psalm 16. So by doing, by doing this, Paul is showing that the resurrection is not a new idea. It was God's plan from the beginning. But then, when we realize what Jesus has done, and what God has done in Jesus as a fulfillment of his promises, we must emphasize that the story of the gospel is not just a story of God and his love for us. Today, we, when we think of the gospel, we think of the attribute of God's love. But here Paul does something different. He emphasizes not God's love, but God's fulfillment. That the gospel in Jesus, God actually fulfills everything he has promised. So that God's word is true, whether we like it or not, whether we experience it as true or not. Reality is, in the resurrection of Jesus, God fulfilled what he foretold many, many centuries earlier. So that the word of God will accomplish what God determined. God's word cannot turn to him void. So when we preach the gospel, when we talk about God, it's not just the, that we should emphasize the love of God, although that's true and we should make that clear. We should also emphasize that God will do what he said he will do. And even when people reject what God said, they are not thorping, they're not swaying away God's authority or God's character. Even in the rejection of the Jewish leaders, they were actually fulfilling what God had said. 
even rejection, the rejection of people is a fulfillment of what God has said. So when we preach the gospel, we should have this confidence that God's word will do what he accomplished it to do. The resurrection of Jesus proved that man cannot put an end to Jesus even if mankind wants to. Man cannot get rid of Jesus. Just tell that when you preach the gospel. Tell, tell people that people try to. And the, the most crucial way was in the crucifixion. And yet they couldn't. Why? Because God appointed Jesus to be the means by which we can be forgiven and the means by which we can be made free. Look at verse 38. After Paul clarifies the resurrection and emphasizes that indeed it has happened, whether we like it or not, here are the big benefits, two major benefits. First, let it be known, verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The forgiveness which mankind desperately needs, the forgiveness which we need because of our sins, because of our rebellion, because of our own self-centered ways, because of a life that may seem good to us, but not to God, because of this, mankind needs the forgiveness of sins. But this forgiveness can be proclaimed to us only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. There is no forgiveness outside of Jesus. There's no forgiveness outside of Jesus. Not through doing religious actions, not through trying to be good, only through Jesus. There are two ways people will try to miss this forgiveness. By one is by continuing in their evil ways. People will miss the forgiveness of God. But the second way people will try to miss this forgiveness, or will miss the forg this forgiveness, is by trying to be good. By trying to be good will not earn us God's forgiveness. It is only through Jesus that we earn God's forgiveness, that this forgiveness is granted to us. The second major benefit that Paul makes in verse 39 is that by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. To be forgiven and to be made free. Two of the greatest needs of humanity. To be forgiven and to be made free. Free not to do whatever you want, but free from the bondage to sin. Free from slavery to sin. Free from the power of sin. Free from the condemnation of God against all sin. By the way, the, the word translated as, as free here in the ESV translation can also be translated as justified or counted right before God. Even, those, even though we have acted wrongly, even though we acted against God, God is able to count us right, even though we haven't done anything right. How can a holy God, who cannot even close a blink of an eye against sin, how can He declare right those who have not done one act of righteousness? The answer is, through Jesus. Actually, God, before he looks at us, he looks to Jesus. He looks at Jesus' righteousness, at Jesus' perfection, and he counts his righteousness 
on our tab. That's the meaning of justification. That's the meaning of being made free. Free from condemnation. Even though all we bring to God is our sin, God is able to count us right. Free of condemnation because of Jesus. I love what Lloyd-Jones said. Man by sin has forfeited his right to approach God. We have forfeited our right to approach God. And indeed, were he left to himself, man would never approach God. But then I love how David Peterson defines this word justification. Justification sets people free from the service of sin so that they can offer themselves to God as instruments of righteousness. Oh friend, this is the great benefit we receive from God through Jesus. That we are made free to stand in the presence of a holy God uncondemned. A God who could, cannot turn away his eye from sin even from a, for a millisecond and yet we can now he can now look at the sinners he redeemed and count them right because of Christ. Oh, in the death of Christ and in his resurrection, we are offered these two great benefits. Now, the presence of sin is with us until, we return, until the Lord returns or until we go to be with the Lord. But the burden of sin is gone. The bondage of sin is broken. The power of sin is shattered in those who have been made free by the gospel. Such freedom could be given to us not by the law of God, but by Christ. I wonder if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've ever understood the salvation of God through Jesus. I wonder if you've ever been given that which man most needs which Christ has provided for us. If you'd like to know more about this, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. But Paul will end on one last point, what man must do. It's a call to believe. But this call to believe is given in the form of a warning. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And now, Paul will quote from Habakkuk 1.5, when God prophesied that he will bring against Israelites judgment through the invasion of the Babylonians. So the warning in Habakkuk 1.5 says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. In the Old Testament, that message was a message of God's judgment. And God said, I know my people won't believe the message of doom that I am about to bring upon Israel. But now it's interesting, Paul takes this message of warning to believe and he applies it not to God's message of judgment, but to God's message of salvation. And you'd think that people would be more inclined to believe God's message of salvation, not his message of doom. You'd think. And yet, look around. Look around how many people today still won't believe it. God is not surprised by that. God knew it all along. But in our message of the gospel, we should give this warning that people must believe. And we should give this warning that they should not fulfill what the prophets have said about the people of Israel during the time of Habakkuk. Because if they do, they do it only to their perishing. 
be astounded and perish is the decree of the Lord for all those who will not believe. And God says, yes, you will not believe. Oh, friends, I pray that this will not be true of you this morning. This is Paul's plead. This is Paul's plead with his audience that they might believe the message of God's salvation through Jesus. Don't turn away from it. Don't ignore it. Don't put it aside. Don't think that you can turn Jesus off from hearing his voice calling you. Because if you do, you're fulfilling God's decree against you as it has been decreed in the prophets. Nothing will surprise God, neither your rejection nor your acceptance. God is in control of our salvation. God is the one who initiates it. God is the one who leads us. And God is the one who calls us to respond to him, to believe and to trust in Christ. Friend, I pray that you would do today what the audience in Acts did. They were eager to hear more about this. If that's your eagerness today, I'd love to talk to you as soon as we're dismissed. For those of us who are already eager to proclaim this news, I pray that you'd go forward with boldness, proclaim the news of God's salvation through Jesus. Even religious folk need it. And we need it to hear it again and again. By the way, Paul will write another letter, a letter to this church, and actually to some other churches in this region, the letter to Galatians. Because even though they heard this message, in a few months or a year, many of them will turn away from it to a different gospel. We, the Church of Jesus Christ, need to remind, remember and remind ourselves of the purity of the gospel so that we may not turn away from it or displace it with legalism or with some other forms of, go of gospelness that are not truly the power of God to save. So I pray that we would cherish this gospel and proclaim it clearly wherever we are. Would you pray with me? Oh, gracious Father, thank you that in Christ you indeed have given us what we needed most, a Savior. Thank you that in Christ you have confronted us both with our need for salvation and with the provision of that salvation. And Lord, we turn to you now. We turn to you, recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing that in Christ alone, in his blood, in his death and resurrection, we can be made clean. Though we have been sinners, though we were dead in our sins, though we were vile in our sins, in Christ, we come to experience your salvation. And through him, you bring us into your presence, into your fellowship. We pray that this would be true of us today and as we depart from this place. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.